the average American could no longer afford the um, average American house at that point. The houses were being built for profit and not for people. I, for one, couldn't afford one of those larger houses. That's why I built my house. And I think I made it a business just because I figured that's the way you get a story out in America. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 120 with Jay Schaefer. My guest today needs no introduction, but for the uninitiated, Jay Schaefer is largely credited with sparking the modern tiny house movement when he built a little house on wheels and launched the Tumbleweed Tiny House Company about 20 years ago. In this interview, Jay will fill us in on what he's been up to lately, riff on the sad state of housing policy, and talk about his latest home, a super lightweight tiny house on wheels that weighs less than 2,000 pounds and costs about $5,000 to build. Stick around for my interview with Jay Schaefer. But first, I'd like to give two listener shoutouts this week. First, to the user Video Star Crazy in Australia, who left a review of the Tiny House Lifestyle podcast on Apple Podcasts. They said, life-changing. This is no exaggeration. This podcast is life-changing. Well, Video Star Crazy, your review was life-changing. It gave me a huge smile, and I thank you so much. The second review is from Shara454, uh, who also left a review on Apple Podcast and said, I've been listening to Ethan's podcast for over a year. I even listened to some episodes more than once. I'm always learning something new about tiny homes and the lifestyle. Well, that also makes me so happy because that's exactly what I'm trying to do. And your reviews of the Tiny House Lifestyle podcast actually helps the show reach new listeners. So if you'd like to do me a favor and help the show, wherever you listen, be it Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher, go ahead and leave a rating and review of the Tiny House Lifestyle podcast. I really appreciate it. And of course, if you haven't yet subscribed, make sure you do so you get each new episode on Friday when it comes out. All right, I am here with Jay Schaefer. Jay Schaefer has changed the way we view housing. For more than 20 years, he has been demonstrating how superior design and social justice can be achieved with less space. As the pioneer of the tiny house movement, he has introduced us to a truly sustainable housing option. Schaefer has spent over a decade living in self-built homes of less than 100 square feet. Jay Schaefer, welcome to the show. Hi, Ethan. Good to be here. Great to have you. Uh, it goes without saying that you are, you know, the the granddaddy of the tiny house movement. Um, you know, my own tiny house is is very much based off of the Fensel, um, one of one of your very popular, you know, earlier designs. And you've you've inspired tens of thousands of tiny homes. Who knows? Maybe it's in the hundreds of thousands now. Yeah, it's hard to say. Everybody's uh, when they're all hiding in people's backyards and out in the woods. It's hard to say how many. Exactly. We're all we all have to be under the radar, so there's there's no there's no way of truly knowing how many of us there are. But apparently there are a lot. Yes. So I kind of want to start just uh back in time in, in the nineteen nineties. Um you moved into an airstream trailer and from there you started 
building a tiny house because you needed more insulation, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the Airstream trailer I bought was only 14 feet long, so it was very small. It was a good experiment in what I needed and didn't need in terms of simple living. And, um, you know, the, the one thing I knew I needed was a bit more insulation because RVs, as recreational vehicle, the title would imply, are designed more for recreation and seasonal stuff and uh, full-time living. So I did, uh, I did set out to build myself a, a little house on wheels. Nice. Now, I feel like the decision to put it on wheels has been one of the most consequential decisions that you made in terms of it, it created, in a way, it created the template for, for all these tiny houses to come. Um, so I'm curious what, you know, why did you put it on wheels? Well, um, shortly into designing the house, I came to realize that, a house, that, that it would be less than a third the size it would need to be to be legal. And um, so to get around that, I decided to, well, not build a house, but rather build a load on a flatbed trailer. And um, that nomenclature, you know, just calling it something else seems to work pretty well when it comes to housing because it is um, largely about what you call it. Right. So basically, so it sounds like the wheels helped you circumvent the building codes and zoning laws so that you could build something as small as you wanted to. Exactly. Yeah. And I like the, you know, I've been on wheels in the Airstream and I kind of like the portability. So I stuck with it for that reason, too. And that is how I uh, came to build a very traditional looking house on a flatbed trailer. Now, how big was that first one? That was only 8 by 12, so one of the smaller ones amongst all the tiny houses out there. And, I, and that model became the Ipu, right? Yeah, exactly. Named after my friend yeah. Mark Ipu, whose name is really, really <laughs> Mark, but yeah, Ipu, Mr. Ipu to you. That's great. Yeah. That's great. And so how long did you live in that one? Um, I was in that for about... Six years, I believe, was living in Iowa. You know, I've been living in Iowa in an airstream and on a, a hayfield. Finished building the house in a warehouse, and then, conveniently, one of the cheapest houses in Iowa City went up for sale. The day I realized I basically needed to find some land, so I bought that three hundred square foot dilapidated house and lived in my own backyard, renting out the the other house to a friend. And did you have to do anything? Did you kind of have to tell them that you were also living in the main house in order to kind of get around any zoning regulations, or was it just kind of fine? Um, you know, at that time, they were just a bit confused by the whole thing, and well, they were pleased to just say, do what you want, just call it camping. And so I called it camping in my own backyard, and it was fine. I did use the, I, I used the bathroom in the other house because I never hooked up the bathroom in my tiny house. Okay. 
Yeah. In your recent um, tiny house, uh, I guess the the online event that happened a few weeks back. Um, in your talk, you you said that nobody seemed to understand that small could be good, and it sounds like they they didn't quite get that. So it was kind of. Yeah, you know, I remember going into the building department, which is shared by the zoning department, talking to the zoning official. And um, I remember her saying, well, if we allow you to do this, you know, it's going to happen is just big, you know, towns or encampments of these things are going to spring up all over the place. And that would be a problem, wouldn't it? I was thinking, well, actually, I don't see how that would be a problem. But um you know, I've never really spent much time talking to the building or zoning officials since because what it, it turns out they'd rather not hear about it, generally speaking. Right. It's like a it's a don't ask, don't tell of of housing. Yeah, yeah. Housing law is so messed up right now that they don't want you know, they don't want don't want to get into it if they don't have to. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would agree. And it's just it's so fractured with how, you know, it's different in every single town. So there's no there's no good way to get a handle on it. Yeah, that's been a a big problem. It'd be nice if one could just design a house that would be legal all across the United States or all across the world. But it is so fractured. Um, I recently started looking at the laws behind the laws, like constitutional law, and it turns out they're not as they shouldn't be as fractured as they are. And um, a lot of the laws are, in fact, not operable. They're, they're not actually legal. So housing law has just gone. It's, it's kind of like the Wild West these days. It, it made a rapid departure from constitutional law a ways back. And it's been operating on its own somewhat um, illegally ever since. Yeah, I was hoping you could say more about that. You you sent me a a great um essay that you wrote uh called DIY Housing Crisis: A Beginner's Guide. And you you also got into this topic in your in your online conference talk. Um I I had written down a quote from that talk actually, you know, for a law to be constitutional, it has to address matters of health, safety and welfare. And if it's not doing that, it's not actually a valid law. Yeah. Are you have you ever have you heard of people successfully challenging housing laws using this kind of frame? Well, yeah, they have throughout history, especially early on when the um, you know the the say in nineteen it was about nineteen twenty actually when um, the first national housing laws were implemented. They were created by a private organization, a corporation called Boca. And the government had essentially decided that Boca was going to be able to create some laws that behooved not only the industry but also the government, and that's when a lot of um, a lot of the madness began, and laws started uh, popping up that addressed not only health, safety, and welfare, but how to make money, you know profitable housing. So um, ever since then, you know that's when. Um, Homelessness started becoming a problem. Our first boom-bust cycle, the first of our boom-bust cycles, came about in uh, 1926, 
And things have been pretty messy ever since then in terms of um, social order and housing. So um, I can't remember what your question was, Ethan, but I, I hope I addressed it somewhere in there. Yeah, well, um, it's a fascinating background or it's just we don't. I think that before I read this essay, I didn't realize that it was so recent that we started putting more and more stringent rules on housing. You know, the concept that the the code is designed to benefit builders and financiers and, you know, it's it's designed to help make profit, I think was something that I really learned from from you and from learning about the tiny house movement. Um but the history being so recent is is kind of fascinating that it's really, you know, just about a hundred years ago, which is a kind of a blink of the eye. Yeah, I didn't even realize how close to the edge of the wave I was working when I built my first tiny house. It was not long before that that the International Code Council or ICC took over the role of BOCA, which is really just the same role as two. Um, it's a private organization designed to create uh, laws that are for health and safety, but also to add some in that are for profit, apparently, because essentially all the laws pertaining to minimum size standards are contrary to um, to constitutional law, because the smaller you build a structure, the safer it is. That's the first, that's the number one criteria when it comes to determining seismic safety or, you know, lateral bracing, like how much a house will hold up to in terms of earthquakes or um, high winds. If it's smaller, it's going to be stronger. All other things being equal. Right. So, so to kind of draw that forward, logically, it would seem that a smaller house, you could use less expensive materials because you don't need, you know, big two by 12 engineered floor joists to to hold up the load of your loft you can use much more inexpensive and less strong per foot but strong enough for the size of the house you know two by sixes or two bytes yeah exactly you know and that's that makes a lot of sense if you're designing and building a tiny house you start to realize pretty early on that if you're following the le- like the nonsensical codes you're going to wind up with a house that's got a very small interior because the walls are so thick and overbuilt and very unnecessarily so. Another interesting fact is that, and one that doesn't get talked about much at all, is that um, you know insulation can only go so far. I guess it can go, it can keep going and going, but for every inch of insulation you add to a wall or a roof or floor you're essentially losing efficiency because while you do get more insulating power out of that, more um, R value, the second inch, the third inch, and so on, become less and less important. The first inch is the most important inch. Once you get beyond maybe three inches, you're really just, well, to take to the extreme, which we have in our code, 40 R's, of insulation is like 10 inches. That's a very thick roof or wall. And that is a big, you know, you start looking at the cost benefit analysis and you're putting way more um, 
um, embodied energy into the product than you're ever going to save. So it's not a very green thing to do. Right. And there's, there's a lot that can be done. Instead of adding more R's, you can, you can use windows that are more efficient, you know, because you, people lose a lot of, a lot of heat through windows. You can also do a better job with thermal bridging. And, you know, there, there are other ways you can make a wall more efficient without just making it thicker. Yeah, I really am. I'm happy to hear that I'm talking to someone who understands something about building science. It's just so much, as you say, about other things. Um, the amount of air passing through a wall wasn't even looked at until a couple couple decades ago as a factor. So you could have a thick, thick piece of insulation with air going around the cracks and the edges, but um, it wasn't doing you much good. And thermal bridging is a lot like that, as you say. You have um, wood members going through the wall every two feet or usually closer. That's bridging cold air to the warm interior or vice versa, and it's just a waste. Absolutely. One thing that I, you know, usually caution people about is, you know, with a tiny space and the fact that you're maybe going to build it yourself, maybe not, but it it's more likely that that tiny space is going to be very well air sealed. And so the importance for ventilation in our small houses is is very important. And you you touched on that in, in your essay about, you know, VOC con- concentrations, but also just knowing that just cooking and just breathing, you know, releases carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, hopefully not too much from the cooking, but but that does get into the air and that, you, you know, in a tiny space, you need to be able to get that out. Yeah, it does actually make a difference. In my Airstream, I had what's called a catalytic heater. And I don't even know why those are still legal, but I guess they are. But they put the carbon monoxide exhaust straight into the interior of the house, consume the oxygen from the interior as well. So it took me uh, far too long to figure out why I was getting such extreme headaches in the morning. But it's because I was being poisoned. And um, yikes. So it is important. If you're gonna, I would first of all recommend nobody use a unvented heater in a small space or anywhere else for that matter. And um, beyond that, you know, I really do rely mostly on windows because I, I like to put quite a few of them in. So if you've got enough windows and you're, and you're venting your house even in the winter with those, you're going to be fine. Otherwise, mechanical venting, you know, with the fan, it certainly do the trick quickly. Yeah. So going kind of back to the, you know, the starting, the start of this all, um, you know, you, you are the first to say that, you know, this isn't your idea. There were people building small houses. In fact, that was the norm for most of human history. But, you know, you were inspired by Lester Walker's book, um, Tiny Houses. And I'm curious, you know, what, what, do you think it was about, you know, your particular build or maybe it was that you started a company to to get the word out? Like why why do you think that that it took off in the way that it did? Well, it seems like uh the universe conspired somehow. For one thing, I was really 
picky about the way the house would look house-like. It's not like a gazillion travel trailers weren't already out there. It's just that they weren't built for full-time habitation. And for that matter, they didn't really come off as very homey. They were more on the mobile side of mobile home. And um, so when I built my house, I, I was sure to integrate a lot of archetype, archetypal house forms like gable roof. They've been put in a Gothic window. It was kind of like American Gothic house, you know, clapboard siding. And a lot of the um, comforts you would associate with a, with a comfortable home, like a, a nice, well, way too big a fireplace actually inside. I've since scaled down on that, but it did have a fireplace and a kitchen and a bathroom and very comfortable um, accommodations. So I think that coupled with the timing, because there was nothing else out there, not much of anything in terms of um, mid-sized or small housing, it was all, it was just turning into all McMansions. The average American could no longer afford the um, average American house at that point. So at around that point, people were starting to get a little wary of what was going on. So it was hard to recognize exactly what was going on. It's just that the houses were being built for profit and not for people. And I, for one, couldn't afford one of those larger houses. So that's what I, that's why I built my house. And I think I made it a business just because I figured that would be, that's the way you get a story out in America is through marketing. Yeah, well, it seems like it worked. <laughs> yeah, and it turns out that cute pictures, you know, pictures of cute houses and interesting human stories actually are a big draw for the media. So that worked really well. Certainly, certainly. And you, is it true that you you were on Oprah? Did you actually have the house on set at o with Oprah? Oh, wow. You know, I was on Oprah. They came out to film my house in California, sent a crew out. They were going to, um, they were all ready to take it to the, the studio. I actually have some really, I really have a, a, a big apology to offer for to Oprah and her show because they got out here with a, a big truck and there was a storm going on at that time all across the Western United States, like snow and sleet and, heavy rain and i had no other place to stay right off so i had to retract the idea of sending my house to chicago and they're gonna have to take off the roof to get it in the studio anyway and i, I just got really nervous and it chickened out so for months after that i saw oprah's face on the cover of her magazine and i imagined she was glaring at me for good reason but she uh, she's a very generous person doing great things and anyway it was very kind of her to feature the house anyway, to have me on the show. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure she, I'm sure she understood. Yeah. Yeah, I certainly hope so. she seemed to have. She's, she's a very kind woman. From what I, I'm yeah. not like me, I didn't make best friends with her, but she certainly seems to do the right things in this world. Right, right. So, so you originally put the house on wheels. Um, because you needed to get around the the legal kind of hitches. Yeah. Um, and tiny houses on wheels have now kind of become the norm, um, despite many people 
you know, just not being mobile in their tiny houses. Yeah. Um, and, and the laws now, you know, have come back around and with, with Appendix Q having been kind of passed and slowly disseminating through the country, you know, you actually can now build a sub 400 square foot foot house. Yeah. This leads to a good point. Um, uh, around 2015 or so, five years ago, a bunch of tiny house people, including my friend Andrew Morrison and and others, many others, sought to get some of these these inoperable laws off the books. They went straight to the ICC and and worked with them. And this is a good time to mention, by the way, that while my essay makes it sound like there's this good and evil thing going on. Without good people at the International Code Council and in the um, building and zoning departments, none of this stuff would probably happen. So, so now we can build houses on foundations that are very small. Um, the main thing that changed was now you don't need a uh, room that's 120 square feet. You can have a room that's just 70 square feet. I take issue with that change because it's still unconstitutional it's like oh we realized this law was unconstitutional so we'll just change it to a more lenient non-unconstitutional law but you know it works in our favor so now houses can be very small on foundations and i've never called the tiny house anything in particular i've just said any house that's small enough you know that where all the space gets used so foundation or or wheels or whatnot i feel like it's all the same thing to me and in fact, they're kind of merging because some municipalities are allowing for wheels now for their ADUs for the houses out in the backyard. Right. There is there is a merging. And there's also. I've I've noticed that there is something of a split in how different cities and towns are legalizing tiny homes. Some of them are requiring you know, an RV certification and others are, you know, going the Appendix Q route and then kind of amending that code so that it in, is inclusive of wheels. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's, um, I haven't looked into it too deeply yet, but I'm told that the, the um, tweak to the codes, the Appendix Q codes allows for a pretty easy fix for those municipalities who just want to get up to speed and actually make their codes legal or constitutional, I should say, I should say. So some people are doing that. And um, so, yeah, it's hard to design houses these days because it's hard to know what is legal anymore, what will be tomorrow. Right. And it's it's also, you know, just having looked into bringing my tiny house to to Burlington, Vermont, which is the biggest city in Vermont, but you know, it's for anyone living in a in a real city, I would say that if you came to Burlington, it would look like a small town to you. <laughs> but you know, just even here the the building code is only part of the problem. The the bigger problems are the zoning laws around, for example, lot coverage like how much of your lot can you cover in buildings and wastewater and you know what your you know how much wastewater you're permitted to to discharge on your site and adding another you know another home to your home 
puts you out of sync with that. And it just, it's, it can feel very deflating when you really look into, you know, I want to live in this specific place in a tiny house. How do I do it? Yeah. uh, That's the biggest problem. Building officials will generally just say, this isn't really our deal. Can build whatever you want on wheels because, well, one thing that's RV territory, or for that matter, just building, piling a bunch of lumber on the back of a, on top of a, um, a car hauler. So they'll generally just defer to the zoning department, and that's where the problems arise because they'll they may say, you know, you can't have a second house on property, you don't have enough square footage on your property, and that's where a lot of the um, uh, racist and classist origins of the code start to really show it they exist in building code um you know making houses that average americans can't even afford is is obviously not serving the public very well um but beyond that you know you look at zoning and you can look back at some of the early early texts mostly the ads for for um like new developments and they'll say like our uh, our development incorporates a lot of um, a lot of laws that allow only only the good races in, and only the good people keep out all the riffraff. So, I actually quote one of those in my um, essay, and it really reveals the, the the nature of current building code. It's it's very it's really very classist. Yeah, absolutely, and I think we're only starting to really address that you know i think i heard that i think it's minneapolis saint or minneapolis is is abolishing single family zoning for new construction so basically like if you're building on an empty lot you cannot build a single family home it has to be you know it has to be or or greater yeah changing everywhere and you know one of my favorite forms of multifamily housing is pocket neighborhoods because i i've always been a fan of the um iconic freestanding single family home small of course i like the small ones most but um they're not as efficient as as like apartment buildings because they're not sharing walls and all but it's hard to get around the fact that most americans do prefer single family houses probably because of the our history and and the iconic appearance of of a freestanding home I'm curious, do you see a future where where tiny houses on wheels will be legal to live in 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 most states or all states? I do imagine so. You know, it goes back to the constitutional um, laws and they do state that, you know, if it's not for health, safety or welfare, it's not the welfare of the general public. It's not really going to hold water. It's been holding these laws have been holding water for a long time, but I think it's because they haven't really been scrutinized much. It's kind of hard. To, it's kind of a, um, it's hard to track exactly how it happens because the, the private organizations develop the codes and the states adopt them. Then they hand them off to the local municipalities for tailoring. And it's just hard to track. But when you look back at the origins, yeah, you can't. I don't think we're going to get away with what we've been getting away with for the past hundred years for all that much longer. Wheels are. Um, I don't remember where, but I think. Well, you may know better than I. I can't keep up anymore. 
but um, they are allowing for, told they're allowing for houses on wheels as ADUs now in backyards in some municipalities. So, and that would make sense if it's not happening, it should, because um, right. as a Northern Californian, I've seen a lot of houses on wheels survive the fires, our recent fires in recent years. You know, they come out of the woodwork, so to speak. You'll see, like, you, you start getting a, a glimpse of how many tiny houses are out there when a fire comes along, and suddenly the roads are filled with tiny houses that are escaping the fires while the, the larger houses they were sitting behind are burning. And when it comes to earthquakes, obviously, you know, you've got yeah. uh, shark, shock absorbers for one thing. You know, small, once again, small is better for seismic. And so there's really no reason to have uh, any kind of law prohibiting that sort of foundation. And, you know, if you're sitting in your car, if you've ever driven a car over 40 miles an hour on a bumpy road, you know that um, wheels can hold up to a lot of a lot, a lot of seismic activity. Yeah. You know, the the tiny houses on wheels as ADUs, hearing you talk about it, it it's it's a little bittersweet for me because, you know, for example, Los Angeles, they, on December, in December of 2019, they announced that they passed an ordinance to legalize movable tiny homes as ADUs in the city of Los Angeles, which is amazing, um, you know, that such a big city is doing this. Um, the thing is, is that when these towns go to do it, they they say, like, we need a way to certify these structures as safe. And and Los Angeles and I know the uh, like, for example, the Lake Dallas community in, in Texas, you know, they require that the houses be RV certified. And the so the bittersweet thing for me is that, you know, a lot of the manufacturers of tiny homes are offering that certification and it's not that you can't get that certification on a self-built tiny house but it definitely adds some burden and it also can't be done after the fact as far as i know and so it's it's bittersweet because on on one hand it's it's providing a path for people to you know live small and do it legally but then on the other hand it it does kind of push people back into the regulation and the business, the business interests of the RV industry. And it also kind of, it, it crushes the DIY spirit a little bit and makes it that much harder for you to, to live in a DIY tiny house. Yeah, I feel the same way. I had this exact same feeling when I heard of the legalization of the wheels. Um, it, uh, you know, I'm really into the self-built thing myself, self-designing. Generally, they turn out to be a lot of a lot higher quality than other houses because if you're building it for yourself, of course, you're going to build it really well. Um, I, you know, there was a time, in fact, still it remains this way. In most municipalities, if you build a structure of 120 square feet or less, you can do it without permitting. And that is because a small a, a structure that small is not considered a danger. Now you can't um, those codes in the zoning doesn't necessarily allow you to live in that structure as a house, 
or rent it out for that matter. But as far as I'm concerned, it should, because if it's safe, then, then, uh, you know, I guess I shouldn't uh, overstate it. I think some regulation may be necessary, especially if you're building stuff to rent out to other people. Um, but when you look at the, you look at what code has created and zoning has created, which is a bunch of tarps. Sometimes people don't even have a tarp. They're sleeping in the rain. That is what um, zoning and codes have created. Um, because most Americans can't even afford the average, average American house. A lot of us are actually forced out into the streets. So when you consider that, and you consider that there is a code near the beginning of the um, code books, almost number one, maybe number five, I don't know, that says if you can meet this code or beat this code in terms of health, safety, and welfare, then you can do it. So the bar is pretty low right now, as far as I'm concerned. It's like codes are prohibiting a lot of uh, people from having any home at all. So I would like to see that kind of perspective on it and just allow people to create themselves some safe place to live. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree on that one. Yeah. Oh, oh, I just wanted to mention, I think maybe I did mention, yes, I did mention that not all code and zoning people are evil. They're, it's a new guard. A lot of uh, people in those departments now are familiar with tiny houses and are working in our favor. Oh, absolutely. And I, I'll echo that. And, you know, I've had conversations with, with people here that have said, you know, kind of this is off the record but like i love tiny houses i would love to do this in this city but like there's this basically mountain of regulation standing in the way but i think that that is that to me is the most promising thing is that the the kind of awareness of tiny homes has gone way up so people know what they are and they you know now that they're not unknown they're not as feared and then the other thing is that, you know, these people who go into into zoning and into, you know, into the kind of governmental side of of building regulations, they are usually housing nerds. They love houses. They love design. So they, it's a perfect audience. Yeah, um, I think that that may be that those people in those positions may be um, of they're in a, a position of power now. I mean, the the thumb that they're under is essentially the municipality, which, you know, they want to keep their tax brackets high so they don't want to um, provide housing for people who would be poorer than those that, than they would prefer in their county. But the old, um, you know, the idea of trying to force people out of your county because they can't afford the, the housing doesn't really work when every single county municipality in the nation is doing it. And I think that the people in these positions who are in favor of this stuff are in it. I think that they are the way forward in large part because with ammunition like this, just knowing what the laws behind the laws dictate um, is very valuable. They may be under the thumb of their local municipality, but they can only get away with so much. I don't mean to ramble on too long, but I will say this. Uh, a, 
a local municipality near me recently did purchase 60 very tiny structures uh, for homeless people. Um, I think that's great. They turned out to be 60 square feet, which is 10 feet smaller than is actually legal by the state code or any any other state's code for that matter, I think. And so they're going to have to change the codes now, which is a great impetus. You know, it's like, oh, well, necessity leads in this case. So they they may try to just brush it under the rug, hope nobody notices, and that may be the case. But this sort of thing is going to start happening because as necessity dictates that we do provide small housing, um, we're going to have to allow for it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny. Like the government does something and then realizes that it's against their own laws. So they have to change them. (laughs) Right. And it should be pretty easy to do considering the foundations of the laws themselves. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you a little bit about about your latest tiny house, um, which I think I saw it featured on on the Living Big in a Tiny House YouTube channel. Um, are you still living in that house? Yeah, I'm glad you saw that. I thought they did a great production job with that, that sh- show. And um, I am living in that house. I have not been living in that house for, for the past nine weeks of shelter in place because I'm staying up in the mountains at a friend's house. I would not do well alone during shelter in place. So, um, but otherwise, for the past uh, three years, I believe it is, two years at least, I've been living in a house that's just 50 square feet, um, seven feet by eight feet. And I designed it so I could clip a uh, bathroom or a kitchen module onto it. I haven't needed those yet because I've used it in tandem with a larger house, so I could use the bathroom on the property at, at, at the larger house. But um, yeah, it, I'm, I'm really happy with it because I used a lot of the building science I've been studying and um, a lot of the very efficient design to keep it at, uh, well, it was only $3,000 for me because I salvaged a lot of the materials. More, more like five thousand if you want to buy them straight straight off the shelf, mm-hmm. which is is pretty darn cheap for a high quality house. Yeah. So what? Ha- maybe you can give me a rundown of just the the building construction. You know, what's did you do? Advanced framing? How did you insulate it? Just you know, be interested to hear you know how you kept those costs so low. Yeah. Well, you and I will have to talk more sometime about things like advanced framing because that's my kind of that's what I like to geek out about. Um, I did um, I did use advanced framing or even a, an advanced advanced framing, just figuring out where the um, stresses would be on the house and eliminating the studs and other members where they weren't necessary and and beefing them up where necessary. So I used a lot of um, diagonal bracing instead of plywood. That that uh, creates the lateral bracing it needs, as if it needs much for a teeny tiny house. But uh, and then I actually put the insulation on the outside of the framing, um, so that there was virtually no th- uh, thermal bridging. 
and then kind of sandwiched it there by by putting a, some baths on the outside of that foam insulation to connect it to the interior members and hold it all in place. So, um, yeah, it's very lightweight. It's only um, it's less than 2,000 pounds. Cool. So, yeah, yeah, I'm very amazing. And it's on a on like a single axle trailer. Yeah, I bought a a trailer which, for eight hundred dollars new, is a very cheap trailer. Um, it's only supposed to hold, you know, sixteen hundred pounds, which is about what the house weighs. So, I max that out, and and that's part of how I built it so cheap. Yeah. Is that like one of those Harbor Freight trailers or, or Northern Tool, one of those like build-it-yourself trailers? Yeah, might as well be. I, I did buy, it's not one of those, but it's about the same size. Okay. Are there plans for, for this little house that you've built? You know, I haven't put out plans for years. I got a little bit out of the, had a bad taste in my mouth for certain parts of the tiny house world. Um, I still believe the tiny house <laughs> yeah. movement is awesome, but there are some interlopers in there that made life difficult for me in terms of competition. But I have not put out a plan in five years. My plan for the plans is to, uh, I would like to release this one as a freebie because it could help so many people who need the most essential form of housing. And then release all this other stuff I've got that meets code and current code anyway. And, um, you know, it is very efficient. It uses the same principles of efficiency. I'd like to get that stuff out at some point once I get up the courage to re-enter the um, very competitive world of tiny housedom. Well, I'm sure there would be a lot of people very interested in in seeing the plans you know, even if the thing about plans now, I, I feel like, is that everybody seems to want a custom house. Um, so in a way, the plans are less. They they play a different role, but I think they're still really important. And especially for a house like you're describing. For someone to be able to see the plans and understand how it was built and so that they can then apply that, you know apply those lessons on to their own design, I think would be very valuable. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I might as well take this opportunity to plug myself. If anybody out there wants to start a tiny house business or has one and needs a stellar designer who knows how to create amazingly efficient houses, please contact me. If you can, it's hard to find me these days, but uh, I should mention my email address. Can I do that? Can I mention my email if address? If you want to, you can, but I, yeah. It might be a little bit flooded. But yeah, I mean, I was going to suggest, uh, um, you know, people could leave a comment on this episode page. There we go. Um, Thank you, Ethan. And then I can I can pass those along to you. Thank you, Ethan. That would be much better. I am, I am, I'm pretty well hidden these days for my, um, yeah, act, after my exodus from the tiny kingdom. <laughs> Living, the king is living in exile. Yeah. Yes. I am. I am. <laughs> so, yeah, it had gotten pretty sticky for a while. With I was getting hundreds of slap suit um, letters from 
other companies' lawyers saying that I had to stop designing, that I was plagiarizing their designs, which, as you can imagine, is, is a slap suit because actually they were my designs and from the get-go. And now they were using them. So it got too, it got a bit too hairy for my taste. It wasn't exactly the tiny house world I, I had um, lived in and enjoyed for yeah. a while. Yeah. So yeah. I posted um, on Instagram that I was going to be interviewing you. And I asked, I just asked people if, if they had any questions that they wanted me to ask. And I got, I got one that I actually think is a great question, um, which is, um, where do modern commercial tiny house on wheels manufacturers go wrong and what pitfalls should they avoid? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think that, uh, well, I know that a lot of them, the ones I'm familiar with, the most familiar with are, um, largely overbuilt. Well, they either overbuild build or underbuild, and most of them I've seen overbuild, so they put in twice as much framing as you need, which increases the weight of the thing, almost doubles it. And um, I think that there's um, more than that. It's really the design that I've had trouble with because what I've seen is, you know, the the in, impetus for the whole tiny house thing, as far as I can tell at least at my end, was to create, you know, high-quality structures or less. And um, sometimes it seems like some of the um, manufacturers are going as big as possible. Like, the world's biggest tiny houses seems to be a theme these days. And just not necessarily making that additional square footage all that useful but just, it's kind of sloppy design sometimes. I've seen some sloppy designs where it's just like with standard, you know, stick-built uh, stock housing in the United States. Just stick in enough square footage and some of it will be useful and never mind the rest. And uh, and, and the same goes for things like just proportion and um, a lot of the things that can make a house look really, really nice. Yeah, that's that's a good answer. I would agree. Yeah, because we had we had um, double wides and single wides before, and they started looking a lot more house like when the tiny house thing came along. Yeah, there are some there are some companies that are RV companies that are now building tiny houses, and it's it's interesting because they they look like tiny houses. And I don't know, I don't know how well they're built or whether they're, you know, insulated in the way that you would need for full-time living. Yeah, well, one thing, uh, I think if you're buying an RV certified tiny house, it's probably going to be, well, I don't know, I was going to say it'd probably be reasonably well built because it's certified and and yet somehow the um, regulators get around all sorts of mold issues and whatnot. I don't know why they haven't caught up on that stuff yet. But if you can, um, you know, there are a lot of great RV tiny houses out there, like park model homes, park model RVs, I should say, even even manufactured housing or mobile homes, as they're sometimes called. Um, a lot of the... Uh, 
manufactured housing or mobile homes, the, the problem with designing tiny houses there is that their requirements for space are actually larger now than they are for for like stick built homes on foundations. So it's it's hard to build a tiny house in that category. Yeah. Yeah. I think you still need like a living room of a hundred maybe two hundred square feet. That's what it was last time I checked. It was oh my. so um yeah. It's too bad the um manufactured housing industry and the parks, the mobile home parks were a little bit off in there. They started requiring double wides, no single wides allowed at around the time tiny houses became hmm. popular. And I think they were a little I think they were off. Although I guess they're just doing the you know, just trying to keep out the riffraff. I don't know. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Who knows? Well, I don't want to keep you too long. Um I but I one thing that I do like to ask uh, all my guests is what are two or three books or other resources um, that have inspired you in the realm of, of tiny houses or just in your personal philosophy that you'd like to share with our listeners? Oh, thanks for asking. Um, I do like Lester Walker's Tiny Houses because uh, that was essentially the the original there were other tiny house books too, but he pretty much summed it up in there. To be honest, a lot, you know, now you look at a sh- the bookshelves at a bookstore and it's like a third of the housing books are tiny house books. So um, I do like some of the newer ones that are in color and um, very, you know, there are a lot of great examples in there. I like, uh, I'll name my own book, the small house book, because I spent a lot of I spent a few years writing that one, and uh, it was a culmination of a lot of things. So it owes a lot to the other books that I do like. Um, oh, I can't think of them right now. If I was if I was sitting in front of my bookshelf, I could name a thousand. But definitely, tiny houses, um, small house book, and um, oh. Uh, Oh, I can never remember. I don't remember the names of them all. I just go into this bookshops and and look at. I I like the pictures. I go for the photos. Nice, pretty pictures go a long way in my in my book, so to speak. Certainly, yeah, they can definitely they can definitely help inspire designs and and kind of evoke feelings of a space without any words. Yeah. Oh, one book I want to mention, even though it's not so much about tiny houses per se is d williams book because she's such a good friend of mine and she's hilarious so if you want to read about tiny house adventures you could get her book which is called oh the big tiny ethan just yeah (laughs) yeah she's great and it's a great book yeah it is a great book she's a great writer no pictures but great book nonetheless easy read fun read yeah, so uh, those are my those are my a few of my favorites. Awesome. So I have to get rid of a book every time I buy a book because no more will fit on my shelves. Ah, and it gets harder and harder each time because you've you've gotten rid of the the book that you liked the least. <laughs> the yeah. quality of the collection well, is always improving. The the quality of my library is stellar because it's just a few books. <laughs> And they're just the ones I've been I've managed to be able to keep. Nice. Well, 
Jay Schaefer, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk with me. And I'm just so, so grateful that you were willing to come on the show. Thanks, Ethan. It's really a pleasure. I'm glad that you uh, let me be on. Thank you so much to Jay Schaefer for being a guest on the show. You can find the show notes from today's episode, including photos of Jay's gorgeous tiny home and a whole lot more at thetinyhouse.net slash 120. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 120. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving a rating and review wherever you listen. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.